then I think we have more of a basis for a conversation about you know, is is it rational to do you know life extensions and refurbishments and other things on on the existing units. And part of my concern is we just we just haven't had that conversation yet. Where we've sort of said is this is this is this the choice we need to make? The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I'm interviewing someone deeply involved with advising Canadian institutions on the energy policy uh, for the energy transition. As this has also been a a focus of the podcast, I'm looking forward to discussing uh, the best approaches for the country. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please hit like on your podcast app. And if you'd like to join the discussion, please join our Facebook group, The Rational View. Mark Winfield is a professor of environmental and urban change at York University. He's also co-chair of the faculty's Sustainable Energy Initiative and coordinator of the Joint Master of Environmental Studies Juris Doctor program offered in conjunction with Osgoode Hall Law School. He's published articles, book chapters, and reports on a wide range of climate change, environment, and energy law and policy topics. Professor Winfield has acted as an advisor to the Environmental Commissioner of Ontario and Federal Commissioner for Environment and Development. He's also served as a member of the Conseil d'Administration, or Board of Directors, of Transition Energetique Québec, a crown corporation established to implement a low-carbon energy transition strategy for Quebec. He's currently co-editing a volume on sustainable energy transitions for Canada, Opportunities and Challenges for the UBC Press. Dr. Winfield, welcome to The Rational View. Good morning. Thank you for joining me. Could you tell me a little bit about your background? Uh, You're involved in environment and law, it seems. What what was your career path to, to get to where you are now? Well, it's it's been kind of an interesting one. Um, I completed a PhD in political science at the University of Toronto, dealing with environment uh, policy issues in Ontario and Alberta, of all places, and then worked for uh, nine years as a research director with the Canadian Institute for Environmental Law and Policy here in Toronto. Uh, I worked also within the Federal Environmental Commissioner's Office briefly, which was a very interesting experience, and then worked for six years um, with the Pemin Institute, which is, a, I think, well-known non-governmental organization that works in the energy field, and then have been a professor here at York University. Uh, I think it's now um, we're into the 15th or 16th year uh, of doing all of this. Nice. So um, what are you focusing on uh, these days? I see you're writing a book uh, on policy. Uh, Could you maybe give us a little overview of of what your work is is focused on now? Well, work is focused in a number of areas. As as you mentioned, uh, the book, which is an edited volume uh, that we're doing for UBC Press, has been a primary focus. And we've been thinking there about uh, a number of themes about the relationship between sustainability, decarbonization, uh, and some of the challenges that exist there. And then also um, we're, we're faced with a, a more and more challenging landscape as well in terms of uh, the, the populist backlash against climate change policy that we've seen in a number of places, including here in Ontario and Alberta and uh, in Europe and other places as well. 
And then also we now have this this variable, this this enormous external event of, of the war in Ukraine, um, which I think is 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 we're, we're just beginning to grapple with how that is is altering the, the energy conversations and, and the climate conversations, especially uh, initially in Europe, but now also clearly affecting us as well. Um, I also have written extensively on uh, more specifically electricity policy in Ontario. Um, so looking at the, the sort of pathways uh, the province has taken, but also perhaps the pathways the province could and should be taking. Um, and that conversation, I think, just in the last week has, has accelerated in some very interesting ways um, with the announcements around a life extension at Pickering, um, a new small modular reactor at Darlington. Uh, but there have also been other things that have emerged in the last little while that suggest there are, there are other pathways available for the province if it, it were to choose to, to consider them. I've read uh, some of your work and you point out that Ontario has no planning or regulatory framework around the future direction of its electricity system. I think this has been a problem not only for Ontario, but the entire world for, for it seems like decades. It's, it seems to me ludicrous that governments aren't making commitments to emission. They're making commitments to emission levels with no basis in, in the, the grids or the, the systems to get there. Why isn't this a higher government priority? Why aren't people, why aren't they looking at this? Well, I think uh, that's a good question, um, and a particularly acute one in Ontario, where we're in fact proposing to not only extend the life and increase the utilization of existing natural gas fire generation, but also to actually build new gas-fired plants. Um, there seems to have been a disconnect in a sense that um, we've had fairly high-level commitments around reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The federal government has increased its um, nationally determined commitment under the Paris agreements to a 40 to 45% reduction relative to 2005 and has said the goal is net zero by 2050. Um, and the implication of that, among other things, would be uh, electrification of transportation, um, uh, particularly passenger transportation. Heavy freight gets a little more complicated. Um, and then also uh, the, the other big one in Ontario and indeed uh, most of west of the Ottawa River um, is will be electrification of space heating as well, um, which is which is almost unexplored territory at this stage. And there are industrial sectors around which we will need to move towards electrification as well, some of which are going to be difficult, like steel and certain types of chemicals. Um, but there doesn't seem to be a connection made between that sort of high level international and national commitment and well what does this mean in terms of electricity systems and uh, you know what what does it mean in terms of, of potential demand um, how would we go about meeting that demand um, what what's that demand going to look like uh, you know in terms of, of qualitatively you know what 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 is it we're really going to be trying to do and at this stage we, we just don't seem to have made you know, that, that at the provincial level where the real decisions get made about electricity systems, um, there are exceptions, but but for the most part, the connection does not seem to be there. Where, where we've seen activity, um, we've seen some movement towards the phase out of coal because the federal government has now adopted regulations saying that's going to happen. Um, mostly then in the direction of natural gas, at least what we're seeing in, for example, Alberta. Um, but 
beyond that, um, there doesn't seem to be much of a conversation happening yet. Yeah, yeah. There's there seems to be uh, the the promises are being made without the necessary framework and costing to to get there. Uh, and that's it's an important discussion, and some difficult decisions would need to be made. Now, I, and so I know the Canadian government has made some, what I would say, ambitious announcements about uh, hydrogen economy and carbon capture in our energy transition. And some critics I know would say that carbon capture and hydrogen are maybe not the best places to be spending our money to meet our our climate goals. Um, and some would say these are projects being pushed by fossil fuel industries to keep their hands in the honeypot. <laughs> Should these projects be placed centrally in Canada's energy transition strategy? Well, I think I think this is a very good question. Um, and the federal government seems to be galloping ahead regardless at this stage. Um, in the last budget from, from last March, I mean, we saw what will be at least a $1.5 billion tax credit for CCUS in, in the budget, which was an industry ask. And there may be more as well. I mean, Alberta is also making commitments. And you know, the question has been raised by many people. Indeed, there's a letter from, uh, I think there are more than 400 academics and scientists who questioned whether this was this was a good idea. Um, I'll, I was one of the signatories to that letter. So it was... Uh, um, and I think that the concerns come from a number of different sources. Um, one, of course, being, well, that at the moment, in particular, the fossil fuel industry is being massively profitable. And so whether it's appropriate for taxpayers to be spending money to subsidize their adoption of carbon capture and storage, I think, is a, is a significant question that, that, that there doesn't need to be a very good answer to. Indeed, we've been talking about should we be imposing windfall taxes as opposed to should we be giving them new tax subsidies? Um, beyond that, there is this, this big, these two bigger questions, I think, with CCUS. One is um, that it, it seems, yes, a kind of lifeline to the fossil fuel industry and, and a way of, of keeping the upstream segment of the industry viable in a decarbonizing world. Uh, that it that sort of skates around the question of, well, what, where does an upstream oil and gas industry fit in a decarbonized world? Um, it seems to say, well, they're, they're going to continue to do what they're doing, which is to extract mostly oil from the oil sands, although um, liquid natural gas becomes another set of questions in, in all of this. But well, for CCUS, it's mostly oil and oil sands is what we're talking about for the most part. Um, so it leaves that question you know, it seems to answer the question, well, the sector will continue. And lots of people have asked, well, does that really make sense? Particularly as, as the, the sort of other piece of the puzzle is that, um, you know, the emissions at extraction stage, which is what carbon capture and storage would, would deal with, um, are only part of the puzzle. That, that there's also the question, well, what happens when those fossil fuels are combusted as fuel? Um, and in vehicles or in other applications. And they're going to produce a lot of carbon. Um, and of course, in theory, um, we hopefully are moving in the direction of decarbonizing transportation. And we think about 75% of the, you know, the oil sands oil is going for transportation. Um, there's that question. And then there's a whole series of technical questions about CCUS, about um, is it really going to work? I mean, on the scale that's talked about, I mean, is is the the carbon really going to stay in the ground forever? 
Um, there are questions about the energy balance uh, in the sense of how much energy you have to use to, to pressurize the carbon dioxide to be able to put it underground. Uh, lots of folks have argued it, it makes far more sense in energy terms, well, not to produce the stuff in the first place and do something else. Um, and there are, uh, you know, there are losses in energy efficiency. There are questions about cost. Uh, you know, on a coal plant, for example, you know, the, the efficiency losses, not surprisingly, from effectively trying to cap the smokestack and capture what comes out of it and put it underground, are fairly significant. So that's that's the CCUS part that there's there's and the, there is a heavy reliance there if you look at the federal government's plans. Um, the hydrogen side is is more complicated and more nuanced. Um, I think a different set of questions. Although I think it's it's notable that the biggest promoters of hydrogen pathways, interestingly, are the natural gas industry and the nuclear industry. Um, and that perhaps should be telling us something. Uh, the problem with hydrogen, and the federal commissioners talked about this, is that its role in this process may be being somewhat overstated. Um, the problem really is, well, there, again, there's layers of problems. The big one is that you can't just put hydrogen into the natural gas system and use it as a replacement for fossil methane. Um, there are all kinds of technical problems with that, that, that in some cases the materials and the gas grid are incompatible with hydrogen. Um, most of the end uses we have for conventional natural gas, furnaces, stoves, other things, um, can't burn hydrogen very readily, that you would need to change a lot of the end use technologies. There are questions about the energy density of hydrogen and how much energy you have to use to make it. Um, and those infrastructures for distribution and use at this stage just don't exist. And as I say, you can't just convert the gas grid to run on run work with hydrogen instead. It's, it's much more complicated. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to store. You have to pressurize it, and it takes a lot of energy, and it leaks out of everything. Yep, it's very leaky because the infrastructures were designed for methane molecules, not hydrogen molecules. And it is, you know, there are hazards as well, but it's it's a tricky material. It's a, you know, it's very reactive. It's it's a tricky material to handle. The other, um, you know, the 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 other sort of, be aware. I think if you look at the more serious literatures around hydrogen, um, what they're pointing at is that this this may be useful, um, especially in. But, it, but its uses are going to be more niche-like. Like, like it, it's going to be in places that are very difficult to decarbonize. Um, you can't electrify very easily. Um, steel has been one that's come up a lot, that, 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 that you can't really electrify high-quality steel production, that, 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 but hydrogen may offer a pathway there. Um, cement production has been talked about another one, where, where in some ways the the production of carbon is is tied up with the physics and chemistry of what you're doing in in making the product it's not just that you're combusting fossil fuels it's tied up in in the nature of what you're doing fertilizers as in certain fertilizers certain petrochemicals have come up as well um, some discussion around hydrogen too in heavy long distance freight so air rail ships 
heavy trucks is another one that comes up. Again, these are these are these are not everything. These are relatively specific applications of the technology. So that's that's been part of the concern there that it's just being oversold relative to what's really feasible or practical. And there's a whole set of other questions. Where does the hydrogen come from and how do you make it? Yeah, those are those are there's a lot of questions here that this brings up. Um, for my opinion, at least, um, I think there's a there's a good case to be made to look at synth fuel from hydrogen to um, you know. So your synth you're, you're using your hydrogen to make synthetic fuel that then uses the infrastructure that we have in place for distribution and you know closed cycle if you can do it. There's more cost upfront. Uh, in the in the fuel generation, it's a slight uh, loss of efficiency, I guess, because it's an extra process that you have to do. But you you don't have the cost of replacing the entire infrastructure of civilization, <laughs> which, which you know is a big price tag. <laughs> that could become expensive. Yeah, there is. I mean, there are um, you know there are various discussions about methane methanation, you know, and, and using hydrogen as a feedstock there, which could work with the existing natural gas infrastructure, which which often the end uses are relatively efficient. Um, you know, it's, but you lose methane through leakage and other things. And so there are there are possibilities there for sure. Um, one has to look at the energy balance around power to gas type equations always. Uh, but those are possibilities that have been discussed. I mean, the Germans think in those terms quite a bit as well, but that uh, that may be another pathway around with hydrogen that, that works better with the existing infrastructures and end uses. Yeah. So you mentioned where the hydrogen comes from as an important thing, and maybe we should explain this in a little more detail. There's uh, the called green hydrogen and blue hydrogen. Uh, and maybe you could just expand a little bit on, on, on the trade-off there between green hydrogen and blue hydrogen and what those are. Indeed, there's an entire spectrum of hydrogen. We, we, we should have brought a visual for this. Uh, there's red hydrogen and black hydrogen and gray hydrogen and blue hydrogen. Uh, there's even turquoise. Um, so the, the big ones, though, that are getting the most attention, um, green hydrogen is generally seen to be the least controversial in the sense that you're basically producing hydrogen through electrolysis uh, of water and your electricity source for doing that is renewable energy sources. So wind, solar, um, potential hydroelectric, those sorts of things. So basically low or no carbon production electricity that you're then using as your electricity source. And the theory then is your hyd hydrogen can then function effectively as a storage medium. It's a way of effectively storing the electricity that you've, you've produced from wind or solar. Uh, particular period of time when when you don't necessarily need it, all of it for grid purposes. Um, gray hydrogen, which has been the more conventional version, um, is essentially produced from natural gas, and it is a relatively carbon-intensive process. You're releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere as part of the process. Blue hydrogen is the same thing. Um, but you're you're then doing carbon capture storage on the carbon dioxide that we pr produced from from processing natural gas you basically make the hydrogen from natural gas and with blue hydrogen you're capturing and storing the carbon dioxide so it, it in some ways it's better in the sense you're not having a direct release of carbon 
but it then takes us back into the whole conversation about carbon capture and storage. That that's it's basically uh, you know it's feeding into a CCUS system, um, and that again raises all the questions we just discussed about CCUS. So that's seen as as potentially less attractive. It's certainly a pathway that the natural gas industry is very keen on because again they see this as this is how they part of how they transition into a hydrogen economy and how their feedstock works with that. But as I say, you've got the same, um, either you're doing direct release of carbon, which is what's happening now, is how you make most of the industrial hydrogen that's made now is, is gray. It's being made from natural gas and then the CO2 is just being released into the atmosphere. Uh, you would go to blue to um, say that just raises the CCUS questions and, and whether or not that's that's where you want to go. Yeah. So the, the part of the trade is the energy efficiency. The, the green hydrogen electrolysis is very uh, inefficient, right? It's like a fifth, I don't know, 50% or 70, I exactly what the number is. And it's a little bit more efficient to get it from methane uh, and using uh, natural gas, uh, it's less costly to make it that way, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. The you know it it is the you know the trade off with you know you know, with the blue hydrogen is yeah that you're it's going to be potentially cheaper. Uh, although once you put CCUS into the equation, it gets a little trickier. Um, the general view, at least from what I've seen in the the sort of more technical literature, seems to be that if you can do direct electrification, that makes more sense from an energy efficiency perspective. Um, that though there are circumstances when that doesn't work for a variety of different reasons. Um, you know, simply supply isn't there when you need it, and that's where the power to gas notion comes from. That it makes sense then to use hydrogen as your your effectively as your storage vehicle. Um, for dealing with the intermittency issues with renewables, for example. Um, so you would tend to use it in applications where you've, you need to have that kind of storage capacity because um, you don't necessarily have full reliability on the electricity side. I've heard it uh, suggested that hydrogen uh, cracking of water uh, is something you could do with when you have peak uh, generation. If you've, you've overbuilt your, your renewable infrastructure to deal with the variability, and then while it's peaking, you you, you have a, a hydrogen factory that turns on for the for the peak hours and then turns off and waits until the sun comes out again. Um, there's obviously some trade-offs there in terms of the infrastructure usage uh, being somewhat fragmentary. <laughs> Well, this is this is basically what's being talked about. I mean, it's a sort of a form of what the, the economists called arbitrage. Uh, but you basically decide um, if you're a renewable energy system operator, you decide when does it make sense to generate electricity and be feeding it into the grid uh, because demand might be higher. Um, and when would it make sense because grid demand is low, the electricity price is low it may make sense then to run your plant to produce hydrogen instead and store that and then be able to sell the hydrogen to somebody uh, down the road as as for electricity production or for other applications. Um, you know, that would be the basic model. In some ways, you could argue it is optimized in the infrastructure because you're, 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 you never stop generating. 
um, is just you you change. It almost becomes like a cogen plant where you're you're changing what you're producing based on what makes sense at that particular moment. So it, sometimes it may make sense to make hydrogen. At other times, it may make sense to feed electricity directly into the grid. Mm -hmm. The um, the recently announced Canada-Germany hydrogen strategy, uh, when uh, Schultz came over and talked to Trudeau, uh, and people suspect he wanted natural gas, and he got a hydrogen strategy instead. Um, the strategy, from what I've seen, uh, relies on building a, a huge offshore wind farm uh, bigger than all the windmills built to date in Canada, and using this electricity to create hydrogen through electrolysis, and then using this hydrogen in the Haber-Bosch process to make ammonia, uh, and then shipping that to Germany, and then uh, using the ammonia to put electrons into their electricity grid. And at the same time, the government is asking Canadian farmers to cut back on fertilizer, which is also coming from ammonia. This process makes sense physically, energetically. I would put it in the category of needing more, more thorough analysis. Um, I mean, things happened very much on the fly. There, it was as you described that initially the intention was was I think Mr. Schultz was looking for natural gas, and there was the realization that the natural gas grid mostly stops at Montreal. Uh, which is not very close to Europe, and that there's no LNG facilities in eastern Canada. Um, and there actually wasn't that much natural gas available either. Um, so the conversation switched to hydrogen there. I mean, the only natural gas for export that's on the horizon from Canada is liquid natural gas from BC, which is even further from Europe. Um, so that conversation then sort of flipped in the direction of hydrogen. Um, and yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not sure how much this was. This was a political fig leaf to to give the chancellor something to go home with, um, as opposed to a a a really sort of viable proposal in terms of what we might do off Newfoundland. Um, and the Newfoundlanders, of course, for other reasons, have potentially quite a lot of extra electricity anyway. Um, so that's, uh, you know, with Muskrat Falls. So, you know, in some ways, if you're going to make hydrogen in Newfoundland, that might be the better way to do it, um, rather than trying to construct uh, a marine, large marine offshore wind infrastructure, um, which could involve some challenges. I mean, an interesting one from a Newfoundland perspective, uh, and perhaps one where the skill sets are, are relatively well suited towards, but, um, I think a lot of questions have to get asked about the viability and rationality of that particular plan. Um, the the ammonia and methane, you know, and high fertilizer questions is a complicated one, and I have to admit I'm 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 at the edges of that one and only just getting my head around it myself. That that you know the concern is um, more greenhouse gas emissions in in the hydrogen sorry in the fertilizer production supply chain. And there's clearly been some back and forth going on uh, between the agricultural industry and the federal government about what can and cannot be done in that space. Um, I wouldn't be a claim, claim to be an expert on fertilizer production enough to be able to say something very useful um, 
I mean, it is it is where I was somewhat surprised that it is one of the places in agriculture where a lot of the greenhouse gases actually do come from. Um, but I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sort of, you know, I don't have enough technical expertise on fertilizer production to get into the details of of what is and is not feasible. But it it did beg that question too about. I mean, I think I think what happened with the chancellor was was a bit of a political fudge at the last minute to come up with something they could say um, to give the chancellor something to go home with. I mean, in some ways, I think the part that he went home with that was more useful might be the critical mineral stuff um, and the discussions that happened there about um, mineral supply chains and uh, German automobile manufacturers who are interested in materials for advanced batteries. Um, that one might actually turn out to be the more economically important piece raises a whole bunch of questions in and of itself but but that may be the part of that story uh that has a bit more legs um in terms of likelihood of attracting private investment for example um as opposed to just being backed by governments yeah and germany also has um uh, I guess recently decided to extend their nuclear plants that they had originally uh, planned to shut down because of the energy shortages there. And obviously, Canada is uranium rich. I would think that could have uh, entered into the discussion because I know that Germany is, you know, one of the reasons they said, "Oh, we can't continue nuclear because we get our enriched fuel from from Russia." <laughs> but Canada is like one of the largest suppliers. I'm surprised that didn't come up on the discussion. Well, part of it is, I think, because Canada's uranium supplies are mostly committed. Um, and the other problem is, is um, would be the fuel production infrastructure, because the German reactors, as I understand them, are, are not can-dos. Right. They're, they're enriched fuel. So you need, you need the enrichment. Yeah. You would need the enrichment, which, which we don't have the infrastructure to do. And we don't have the fuel. I mean, it's a very deliberate part of the design of can-do reactors, as we didn't um, you know, they operate on unenriched uranium, which would have certain advantages in terms of fuel production, but also reduces weapons proliferation risks as well, and in some ways more efficient. Um, not that I'm a total fan of can-dos, but I'm just you know, making that point. Um, whereas you'd need a fuel production supply chain of which enrichment is part for the German reactors. Um, the other big question in Europe is, well, there's many questions around this, um, is is how much what happens over the next year and especially this winter um, is a bridge. I mean, for the Europeans, it's a question of getting through this winter um, versus is this a long-term change in direction around which it would then make sense to build the supply chain infrastructures. And, and that question's, I think, still un, unanswered. The Europeans, I think, understandably remain skittish about nuclear, particularly as they're receiving very material reminders about Chernobyl and now Zaporizhia. Um, you know, so I don't know where that conversation is going to go in the long term in Europe. Um, I'm not sure the Europeans know. Um, at the moment, they are also putting a very strong emphasis on energy efficiency and renewables, um, although those are longer term. In the short term, they're building, they're desperately building liquid natural gas facilities as well. And um, Germany is restarting its coal plants. 
and there there is a major restart of coal going on as well. Uh, so I think I think the real question, the message from the Europeans at the moment, is that all of this is is a, is a bridge that you know they have to get through this winter, and you know we're going to have to do some things we're not keen about to do that given the situation that that you know the fundamental calculus that uh, Angela Merkel and others made that there was sort of a relationship of mutually assured economic destruction between Europe and Russia didn't work um, and now they have over the over natural gas supplies it was assumed that neither side could turn off the tap because the economic damage would be so enormous that that they couldn't do it Mm-hmm. And then Vladimir Putin went and did it. Um, so you think you uh, know, Putin the, 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 uh, sabotaged the Nord Stream pipeline? Um, from what I've seen, I mean, obviously that the taps were being turned off before that. What I've seen technically is that um, that the damage was most likely done from inside the pipeline itself. Um that it was done through one of the maintenance, they send maintenance robots through the pipelines. And I've seen from what I would consider reasonably well-informed commentators that that's the most likely thing that happened. That, of course, that area between Denmark and Sweden um, is very thoroughly wired for sound. And it would be very difficult to have got a submarine or something in there without somebody noticing. So... The suggestion's been made that this was this was done using one of the maintenance robots that run inside the pipeline, and it, the, apparently that can only be done from the Russian side to that section of the pipeline. So there you go. What's what's the motive there? Do you think? I don't know. Um, the best one I can think of, and I you know um, I'm I'm in the realm of speculation here. Um, the best one I can think of um, was was it was a threat to the Europeans um, that we can interfere with the infrastructure that runs under the Baltic and through the Skagerrak, which is the area between Denmark and Sweden, through which all kinds of telecommunications, uh, fossil fuel pipelines, um, also big hydroelectric lines between Scandinavia and continental Europe all run through that area underwater. So that would be the strategic rationale on the Russian side that I would offer. Um, There isn't any rationale for anybody else. Um, The Europeans would have no incentive to blow up the pipeline and say, at least from what we understand of how it was done, I don't think had the means anyway. Um, so I assume that's my best guess in terms of a strategic rationale was this was Putin trying to say to the Europeans, I can mess with your strategic infrastructure. Yeah, I, I've heard some some good speculation from uh, commentator Adam Blazowski, uh, who suggested that this might be Putin uh, cutting bridges so that he doesn't get undercut by some of his generals talking to Germany, saying everything will go back to normal after this if you take out Putin. <laughs> That's entirely possible too. I mean, I'm I uh, you know, I mean, I did Soviet foreign policy as an undergraduate, but that, that was a long time ago. Um, I think I think you know, an enigma wrapped in a riddle. Um, 
is is trying to figure out what's going on at the moment. I think the practical implications for the Europeans, which is the part that affects us most directly, is you know they're they've got to figure out how do they get through this winter. Um, and I think it's going to be whatever they can lay their hands on. I think the reality for Canada has been, though, that we've had this realization for reasons we just discussed. There's relatively little we can do materially to help in that time frame that we don't have natural gas or simian oil pipeline capacity to the East Coast. It all goes ultimately through Louisiana. Um, so we can't directly move fossil fuels in their direction. Um, and as for the reason we discussed, there are limitations to what we could do on the uranium fuel supply chains as well in the short term. Um, so, you know, we can give moral support, but our even LNG from British Columbia is, you know, years off and carries, of course, an enormous carbon penalty as well. Um, you know, the reality is there's limits to what we can we can really do to help with that situation. The U.S. is ramping up LNG exports, obviously, um, and the Europeans are furiously building LNG receiving facilities and also their own internal pipeline infrastructure. Um, but that's 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 in the very short term, meaning the next six months that the Europeans have to get through. Um, there's limitations to what we can do. Um, the LNG, I mean, is some Canadian, probably some Canadian gas ultimately making it onto those LNG campers, sorry, LNG tankers that are leaving Louisiana. Um, but, um, you know, we have no real direct way of being able to do very much for good or real. Okay. Uh, I'd like to, to move to another, another topic. Um, you've, uh, published an essay called What is Clean Energy? And in reading this, you, you come across as, as quite anti-nuclear. So I'd like to maybe challenge some of the statements that you've made, because from the rational view point of view, uh, I've basically looked at the issues and, and as my background is in physics and the energy density of, of nuclear provides a lot of benefit with a minimum of environmental footprint uh, from what I can see. Uh, I've come to the realization that the public kind of holds nuclear energy to a different standard than other energy sources. There's, there's a fear factor around the high-profile accidents, you know, similar to what you get from airliner crashes uh, versus driving. Uh, although, you know, they're, they're high-profile, very rare events. Uh, but if you look at the numbers, they're still safer on average per unit power than other methods of generating them. Um, in your essay, anyways, you state that uh, nuclear technology is associated with the generation of large volumes of exceptionally hazardous and difficult to manage wastes. Now, most assessment that I've seen suggests that nuclear energy uses less mining and materials per kilowatt hour than any other power source, and this is because of the extremely high power density. What metrics would you use to compare hazard level and waste volumes amongst power sources? And, and, and why does uh, this place nuclear, in your opinion, uh, as a bad choice? Well, um, I actually did a, a life cycle sustainability assessment on nuclear uh, when I was working at the Pamit Institute. So we had, a, we had a fairly thorough look at this. Um, on the waste side, um, you have to look at it life cycle, and therefore you have to be looking at 
the fuel cycle especially. And you know what was very striking was the the volume and the nature of the waste from uranium mining especially, um, which again falls into this category of being exceptionally hazardous um, and exceptionally difficult to manage. Um, it is the only uh, mining waste stream uh, that has actually been found to be toxic for the purposes of the Canadian Environmental Protection Act by Environment Canada and Health Canada. Um, so that's a unique status. Um, the standard figures on uh, uranium mine tailing management are you're looking at containments needing to function on timescales of a quarter of a million years or so has been the figure because you're dealing with something that is uh, semi-liquid. You've got all the usual problems you would have with mine tailings with the additional feature that it's also radioactive. Before you move on, you said you said that it's the only waste, mining waste stream that's toxic? It's classified as been found to be toxic for the purposes of the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. What's that based on? Well, that was based on the assessment that Health Canada and Environment Canada did. So, like, this is compared to, like, gold mining where they use, like, acid leaching and... Well, remember, uranium mine tailings are acidic, too. And in some cases, now in Canada, we don't leach uranium, but we do, and it's done in other places. Um, so, but the as part of the priority substances list of process, under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, the federal government did undertake a toxicity assessment of uranium mine tailings. And that was the conclusion that this is the only one that's, that's actually been classified as SEPA toxic in, in the language of the act. Has that focus been placed on other mining systems, though? They've done, they've looked at, they've looked at, you know, uh, they had not done a toxicity assessment, but um, this was, interestingly, it was, it was, interestingly, the determination was mostly based on chemical toxicity, and it was actually the, the presence of the chemical toxicity around uranium. Uh, which I didn't know myself, but that's that was the basis of that conclusion. So again, with uranium in Canada, you're dealing with the same stuff you would be dealing with any hard rock mining operation in terms of what the nature of the tailings are. Um, and they're going to tend to be acidic, and they're going to tend to contain heavy metals and other things. Um, and But you also then have this additional dimension of both the chemical toxicity of the uranium portion and also the fact that you're dealing with stuff that is is radioactive in a way that other tailings aren't. So that was that was where we landed. That was that was where Health Canada and Vermont Canada landed in terms of of that assessment. Um, there have been other concerns raised too, particularly about radionuclides in food chains. There's particular pathways involving um, country foods in the in the in the vicinity of uranium mines. So. This struck as already problematic at the top end of the, the fuel cycle. And then, of course, you've got various things through the processes. It was, it was also, um, we were surprised at the levels of air pollution also associated with the mine mill operations, um, which we didn't, we didn't know um, when we went into this. Um, so that was, that was quite interesting. Um, and then, of course, you've got the back end problem um, of the waste fuel. And 
you know, NWMO says, the Unicare Waste Management Organization says, well, we're looking at a million-year time scale. Um, this stuff is going to have to be actively managed. So, you know, that, that from our perspective at the time, looking at it through a sustainability lens, um, that, was, that was one area of, of that the fuel cycle seemed to us very problematic. I could see if, if you if you think that you need to manage this actively for a million years, why well, you might come to that conclusion. <laughs> well, that's that's what NWM that was what the Nuclear Waste Management Organization said was we're looking at a million year time frame. The the problem I think is that nuclear is the only power source that is uh, applied the precautionary principle amongst all other power sources in terms of its uh, radiation levels uh, and the danger of radiation levels. Uh, are set using the Alara principle, which is the, as low as reasonably achievable, uh, even though the medical data doesn't back up the uh, the dangerous level. The dangerousness of the requirements placed upon NWMO are not backed up by medical data. So the the look the, the linear no threshold theorem that says that any radiation uh, effect is is dangerous at a certain level, although you know measurements from uh, radiation testing show that anything below about 100 millisieverts is not, does not measurably increase your, your health risk. And you can compare this to say, uh, what I've done at least is looking at um, particulate matter in the atmosphere, say from, from fossil fuel burning, PM 2.5, uh, which we know has a mortality rate at 10 micrograms per cubic meter, which is you know, present in every city in the world effectively. Um, yet we don't feel this needs to be buried in the ground for a million years. We can breathe this in and license these plants. Uh, there seems to be an asymmetry in the policy uh, that suggests that something that is below the level of, like the, the, the nuclear waste, for example, is that radiotoxicity is below the level of the original ore after about 300 years uh, in Kandu, especially because it's very, it's not very hot compared to the enriched stuff. So at 300 years, you can put it back in the ground where it was, and it's less toxic than what it was there in the ground. So it seems to be there's a disconnect in what people are trying to do with this. Well, I think I think there are multiple dimensions. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the NWMO, which is the federal agency that was given the job of dealing with this stuff, you know, the the million year time scale is theirs. Um, that's that's where they came out on this. Um, keeping in mind that they're thinking about this in in multiple dimensions. You know, it's it's the the biophysical hazards of the material in and of itself. Um, but then there are also the security issues um, that you could make a lot of trouble um with waste nuclear fuel if you were inclined to do so you don't have to build a bomb there are other ways of, of causing trouble um there, there are concerns in the longer term I mean, I mean part of the concern has been the time scales and you know even 300 years in 1722 there wasn't much of canada um uh and who knows where you are in where would we be uh 23 22 um you know that's you know from a security from a societal perspective i mean these were all issues that were raised 
by the Seaborne Commission when it did its work in the late 1980s, first starting to think about this, is that there are there's the, the, the biophysical hazards um, around which you know the biggest. Assuming you did deep underground, uh, probably groundwater issues are probably the most significant. Although, you know, who knows? Um, but the other issues they were dealing with were also these these questions of security and access and all kinds of other stuff as well. So that's, I mean, that's where they landed, and you're faced with the problem at this stage that nobody wants the stuff, um, and nobody wants to be host. And from our perspective, I mean, we looked at this in a sustainability context, in which case, you know, intergenerational transfers of those kinds of risks is generally a non-starter. You know, those kinds of timescales is, is generally regarded as a not okay. Um, and that was part, I mean, that was only one dimension of the analysis we did. Uh, but that one was, in our minds, quite problematic, um, given that you also have other you know, potential sources which don't have these fuel cycle problems. I mean, that's just the biophysical problems. There's other dimensions of that as well. I think, I think there's been a, a focus on, on nuclear to the exclusion of other problems in other industries. Like if you look at uh, hydro dams, for example, you have uh, methylmercury being added to the food chain. This bioaccumulates a neurotoxin, uh, which is known to kill people. Uh, but no one is suggesting that hydro dam operators should capture all the methylmercury that's created in their reservoirs and bury it for infinity years, or however long it takes for the methylmercury to um, I mean, it's an that's an element, right? It's not going to go away. It's there forever. Uh, so, you know, discussions of a million years or two hundred fifty million years compared to infinity is negligible. Well, I mean, the, the form of the methylmercury you get from a hydro dam is is notable in terms of its potential for biological uptake. Um, but I agree. I mean, you know, and if you look at the analysis we did at the time, and we 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 flagged issues with large hydro as well. Um, I mean, the practice is, I mean, there's all kinds of issues that arise there in terms of impacts in indigenous communities as well. Um, you know, the practice around dam construction, I mean, you have clear cut to try and reduce the amount of biological material that, that gets submerged, and, and that's the source of the methylmercury. Um, no, I mean, there are impacts with other, other sources too, and, you know, large hydro is one where, you know, uh, you have to ask questions, big questions about, you know, I mean, and there's been a push back towards high, large hydro in the context of electrification, and we need to think about that one carefully. Um, certainly, we didn't take the view in the analysis, we did a larger analysis as well, that looked at a range of different technologies. Um, you know, that the, 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 these are not without downsides themselves. Uh, the question was, was where did the trade-offs lie? And you know, with nuclear, we did feel that there were certain things um, that were unique to the technology and, and uniquely problematic, um, which was part of where we, you know, what, what led us to our conclusions of which, you know, the waste streams up and downstream are, are clearly part of that conversation. Um, you know, there are catastrophic event risks and, you know, the fact is we've, you know, they're not hypothetical. We've we've lived through two and a half of those, might be the best way to put it. I mean, Chernobyl and Fukushima, and then Three Mile Island, 
semi-successful accident, I guess you might call it. Um, and then, of course, now we've had this, these security concerns, which have existed, but never been as acute um, as, as now what we're seeing in Ukraine. Um, so these are all, you know, from, from those perspectives, and again, these are problems that you know, really don't exist with other technologies in the same way. No, no, that, that's, that, I don't think that's true. I, don't know, I think I really... uh, Zaporizhia Dam was destroyed in World War II and killed 100,000 people. And the dams are now being mined right now. So uh, we have evidence that the dams kill more people, that when they're damaged, they drown more people. Uh, we have, you know, nobody's questioning hydro dams as much as they're questioning nuclear. They're saying it's a unique problem, but it's not a unique problem. It's it's very similar in terms of the scale I mean, of casualties, if you look at the science on Chernobyl and the UN uh, uh, UNSCEAR reports on uh, casualties, you know, they can trace about 100 casualties to the Chernobyl uh, explosion and fire uh, from acute radiation and from thyroid cancer. There were 15 deaths, I think. And, you know, even if you use the linear no-threshold theory to predict uh exposure at low levels of high numbers of people, they can only guess that about 4,000 people total will die from solid cancers, but they haven't seen any increase. And Fukushima, nobody died from the radiation. It was all from the response of the radiophobia of, of evacuating old people that didn't need to be evacuated in retrospect. So it seems like these things are being overblown. And, and I get your point. The NWMO is saying that we need to actively manage this for a million years is, is really shooting itself. It's the industry shooting itself on the foot, uh, agreeing to these regulations that are so much higher in terms of the health uh, level impacts uh, compared to other power industries like uh, hydro and coal and, and, you know, even natural gas, which causes smog and kills a number of you know, orders of magnitude more people than all of the uh, nuclear accidents that we've seen. So it's it's definitely, uh, I think, something that we have to take into consideration how these things have been presented to the public and, and how we've uh, ramped up the regulations due to fear. Well, although, I mean, in our larger sustainability framework, I mean, the bottom line we ended up with is, well, you need to avoid these kind of catastrophic accident risks. Uh, and you need to find pathways that avoid them. And and you know we were we've flagged this around large hydro as well as nuclear that you know that there are complications with those pathways which may make them unattractive. Uh, was sort of where we landed on a lot of this is that uh, you know you need you need to you know this is one of the criteria. Um, and I'm not getting too much in technical details around Chernobyl, but you know these are not events we want to have happening. <laughs> no matter what, um, and the fact that they're realized is is you know is is very significant. I mean, and there are also all kinds of debates about radiological standards and about tritium and other things, which I don't want to you know we can end if we need to. But um, I've just you know are you know, and then you know there's a whole other set of questions around the economics of the technology, which which was a large part of our assessment as well. Um, but you know, my my own view is I'm I'm not enthusiastic about that pathway given the trade-offs that exist, and that 
uh, which, which the implication of which is that the bar to go there needs to be pretty high. And we need to be convinced that we don't have any other choices. And at this stage of the game, I'm not convinced of that at all. I think I think there's a lot happening technologically in the electricity sector at an incredible pace these days, which which are opening up possibilities that you know, 50 years ago when Amory Levins talked about soft paths, it was it was it was a notion and a, a dream. Um, now people are doing distributed resources on large scales. Um, so there's there's lots of possibilities out there that we, we need to think through. And my concern is more that, you know, rather than getting into a technologically specific conversation, is more at the moment in Ontario, for example, we don't seem to have any way to have that conversation um, <clears throat> about where what, what, what really are our viable alternatives and where do we want to go. Um, I mean, I, you know, if, if we could have that discussion and we reach a point where, okay, you know, maybe we don't have much choice but to do a life extension on Bruce and Pickering or Bruce and Darlington. Um, <clears throat> I think I'd feel a little better about it. That, if, okay, we, we thought seriously about how far could we push efficiency? How far could we get on renewables? How far can we get in a relationship with Quebec? How far could we get with distributed resources? And after we thought about that, and we still come to the conclusion, okay, we're we're going, you know, in terms of where we need to get to in decarbonization, then I think we have more of a basis for a conversation about, you know, is is it rational to do, you know, life extensions and refurbishments and other things on on the existing units? And part of my concern is we just we just haven't had that conversation yet, where we've sort of is this is this is this the choice we need to make? Um, that's the part that worries me the most in some ways is, is that we need to get there first. Yeah, it's a highly polarized issue and, and politicians are afraid of, of dipping their toes into such situations where you have this polarized uh, uh, thing where, where potentially po protesters could come in and, and mess up your, your re-election chances. <laughs> so it's it's difficult to have these these uh discussions i think and uh, i think it, it behooves all of us as, as experts in this in this field to to challenge to take these challenges on and you know from my perspective at least you know people are recognizing that we're in a climate emergency and i think the you know in my perspective some of the risks are overblown from nuclear i'm definitely behind the fact of not shutting down existing reactors is 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 the first thing that we should be doing. So I'm very happy that they've extended the Pickering uh, reactor. I think that that's crucial. And, and looking at the scale of the energy transition, we need another 98 can-do-6 reactors to electrify uh, all of Canada's transportation section sectors and the heating. You know, that's the scale of the issue. And, and it's, it's we need all of the tools in our tool belt, in my opinion. Uh, obviously, we need to have these discussions about what's the the most economic and what's the most efficient spending of our dollars. So I appreciate your your feedbacks on on, on where you think we, we should be heading as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I think my, my argument has been more broadly that you need to be looking critically at your tools, though, before you, you charge down too many paths, because some of them, some of them are unlikely to work. Um, some of them carry lock-in and other risks that we want to be a little bit careful about. 
Um, and we want to think about, is that really where we have to go um, before we, we charge down those pathways? And, and at the moment, we seem to, in my view, doing a lot of charging and not enough thinking. Um, but that's, that's, that's where we seem to be at the moment. I mean, there's a lot of questionable money or questionable investments flying around. Yes. And we need to be thinking a little more critically about where are we throwing dollars um, and committing to pathways that could turn out to be either dead ends or even more worrying is, is hard to get off if they don't work out. Um, so we need to think about those things in those terms as we go forward. I just wanted to do a little fact check on some of the statements that we heard from Professor Winfield uh, about the NWMO, which is Canada's National Waste Management Organization, charged with uh, maintaining the uh, spent nuclear fuel uh, safely. Looking at their website, um, it turns out that there are two. Com they had twenty-three communities that requested uh, hosting the deep geological repository. Of these two. Uh, they, they've narrowed it down to two, South Ignis, uh, Ignis and South Bruce. Uh, and these two are vying for hosting the deep geological repository. Uh, it's not, nowhere on their website set, uh, does it say that it'll be actively managed for a quarter of a million years. The plan is to uh, place nuclear fuel in the depository over a period of about 40 years. Uh, the project is completed in 175 years at the outside, costing $26 billion uh, total over that 175 years. They already have $5.5 billion set aside for this from uh, trust fund deposits from companies that are generating the waste. Uh, and then by putting it in the deep geological repository, it remains uh, geologically isolated from the surface for periods of hundreds of thousands to millions of years. I appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with us today. Uh, and thank you for, for coming on the show. I'm going to send you a t-shirt if you'd like uh, for, <laughs> for taking the time uh, to chat with us. So I appreciate your time today, uh, Professor Winfield. Well, great. It was a very, very interesting conversation. It was very useful. Thanks, Al. Thank you. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.